family. If you're wondering who that man was that was just here, that's Brother Jeremy Stanley. He's one of the pastor at Golden Valley Baptist Church in Arizona. He's also the pastoral intern for this semester. So pray for him. He's here with his beautiful family, May, and their two children, uh, Josiah and Jasmine. And uh, he has a lot of work on his hands this semester. So pray that the Lord will give him supernatural strength and commitment. It's amazing, Pastor Ed, I think he left me, but we're singing songs of the Incarnation. It's the 1st of October, and we're singing about Jesus taking on flesh and lifted our shame. Praise God. I never get tired of singing about the Incarnation, and neither should you. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, we are grateful for this day. Lord, every day is a blessing from you. We know what we deserve, and yet in your kindness and your amazing love towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ, you let us hear your word again on another day, the Lord's day. I pray, O oh God, that your people would be encouraged, built up, edified in the faith, that we would leave this place saying it was good, so very good to be in the house of the Lord. We praise the name that is above every name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Is obedience for the Christian optional? That is the question before us this morning. Is obedience for the Christian optional? And I pose that question to us today that we need to seriously think and contemplate that question. One of the great preachers of the days past, an English Anglican bishop in the 1800s, you probably know his name as J.C. Ryle, he says this about Christian obedience, quote, Let it be a fixed principle in our religion that obedience is the only sound evidence of saving faith, and that the talk of the lips is worse than useless if it is not accompanied by sanctification of life. The man in whose heart the Holy Spirit really dwells will never be content to sit still and do nothing to show his love to Christ. What is J.C. Ryle saying? He's saying, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, then that shows in evidence in our obedience unto him. But for most of us, in general, we would say that we love Jesus, that Jesus is our Lord. And yet, many times, how we function practically in our day-to-day -day Christian walk is we compartmentalize or separate when we serve the Lord and when we serve ourselves. Let me give you an example. Sunday, today, is the Lord's day, is it not? Or is it the Lord's afternoon? Or is it the Lord's evening? Or is it the Lord's morning? Maybe it's the Lord's hour. Maybe it's the Lord's hour and a half. You understand what I'm saying. We say that Sunday is the Lord's day and we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we shall serve who? The Lord. And yet, functionally, practically speaking, if we could just check off the box and just give him an hour and a half out of one day, out of the entire week, then the rest of the day belongs to me and belongs to you, and we can enjoy the rest of our weekend. Now, we would never say that. Why? Because we are sophisticated Christians. But are you sure you want to live your Christian life that way for the rest of your life? Are you sure you want to live that way? If we say that Jesus is Lord, what does allegiance to Jesus Christ really mean? What does that really look like? Is it simply a mere profession of faith? I say and you say, Jesus is Lord? Or is it more than that? Is it a reliable profession of faith, deeply connected to action? The main point that I want to get across today in your bulletin, and you shall see that, is that allegiance to Jesus Christ requires more than a verbal profession. It actually requires obedience. It requires obedience. The Word of God is very clear. I don't desire sacrifice. I desire obedience. 
we'll see this main point in three key subpoints today. You see this in your bulletin. Point number one, definition of lordship, which is in verse 46. Point number two, the wise foundation in verse 48. And point number three, the final point, the foolish foundation found in verse 49. We need to remember the background. Jesus is still preaching the Sermon on the Plain. He is still talking to his disciples within a mixed congregation. And prior to our text today, Jesus has just finished explaining that a good tree bears good fruit. Why? Because the heart is good. That makes sense. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. Why? Because the good tree was created and designed to produce good fruit. And we understand the opposite of that as well. A bad tree can only produce bad fruit. Why? Because it was designed and created to do that. And then Jesus takes that agricultural farming analogy and applies it to people. That a good person produces good out of the good treasure of the heart. Why the heart? Because the heart of the matter is always the heart. It's the center of who you are. It's the center of who I am. And our words are a direct reflection of our hearts. We have talked about this in sermons past. That what we say is not simply, oops, I should not have said that. What we say is actually coming from deep within us. It's coming from within our hearts. Because verse 45 says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's not a whoops. It's not an accident. It's not a screw-up. It's actually in our hearts. So the question begins or remains for us today is, is our hearts good or bad? And the Bible is very clear that the natural heart is inclined to do evil, wickedness, and much sin. That the heart of man is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So what Jesus is doing in our text today is he's connecting speech from our hearts to the concept of biblical obedience, and he's putting the two together. That's what's happening in our text today. So point number one, verse 46. Read with me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus asked his disciples within a mixed congregation a key, important, critical question. He's asking them about allegiance. Now, back in those times, people would pledge allegiance to Caesar or to the nation or to whoever. But if they don't follow through on that allegiance, then they are professing a false allegiance. Jesus is not talking about that. Jesus is talking about a true allegiance that is connected only to him. So Jesus says, why do you all call me Lord, Lord? The original language is kuri'i, kuri'i. Why do you call me kuri'i, kuri'i? In other words, why are you calling me master, master, and you don't obey, obey what I tell you to do? It's hypocritical. That's the point. The word Lord, in our English translation, should be capital L, and everything else, small caps, O-R-D. So we're not talking about all caps, L-O-R-D in all caps. That is the special revealed name of God, which is Yahweh. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a title, only capital L, then small caps, O-R-D. It's a title of respect. If you respect somebody, you give them a title. We understand that in the West as you walk up to a gentleman, you say, sir, how are you? Or, Mr., how are you? It's a title of respect. And yet, in this verse, the words of Lord is repeated. I've said this once. I've said it a thousand times. When a specific word is repeated more than once, the biblical author is trying to get our attention. The emphasis is this, that it is an emphatic confession that if it's without action, means little means nothing. So that's why Jesus says, why do you call me master? 
and not put into action what I told you to do. Well, what did Jesus tell his disciples to do? We got to back up all the way to verse 20. So let me bring your attention there. We're talking about the Beatitudes. In verse 20 to 26, and specifically verse 23, Jesus tells his disciples, there's a time that's coming that you will be slandered for my name. You're going to be persecuted, not for your own reputation, but because of the reputation and name of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gives them a command, specifically in verse 23. When this happens, rejoice. Rejoice and leap for joy. For you have a reward, and that reward is great in heaven. Isn't it difficult to praise God and say, Thank you, Lord, for this difficulty that I'm going through right now? And yet Jesus commands his disciples, in the midst of difficulty, that you are to rejoice and leap for joy. He also says in verse 27 to 36, and I'm summarizing these verses in order to save time, but he says here in verse 27 to 36, to love your enemies. He also says, do good to those who hate you. He also says, bless those who curse you. And to pray for those who malign, mistreat, or abuse you. Isn't that difficult to do in our flesh? We all have experienced this, have we not, to some level, to some degree? And yet Jesus says, love your enemies. And in our flesh, when our flesh rises up, we don't want to love our enemies. We want to crush our enemies. We want to disconnect their head from the rest of their body. That's what we want to do. But yet Jesus says we are to love them and do good to them and bless them and pray for them. And as a matter of fact, he says, be merciful to them. Why? Because your Father is merciful to you and to me. That's the key. Then in verse 37 to 42, he goes on to say, Jesus gives commands here, do not judge. If we remember correctly, do not judge unrighteously. And you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. It's hard for us to forgive, is it not? We love to hold grudges. We love to think of people in closed fists, meaning not striking them, but I'm going to keep a grudge. I'm going to keep an account of what you said and done to me. I'm not willing to forgive. But yet Jesus gives the command to forgive, and you will be forgiven. And then obviously a good tree bears good fruit. Is it possible for Christian to identify as Christians and yet disobey God? The short answer is yes. But if we understand this context, Jesus is directly talking to his disciples within a mixed congregation. And I think what is happening is this, within this mixed congregation, there are those who identify as wannabe disciples. We understand that term, right? They're self-deluded. They've lied to themselves. They've made themselves believe that they're true disciples of Christ. In reality, they're not. And so they're not born again. They're wannabe disciples. And what Jesus is saying is this. If you truly want to respect me as master and Lord, then you'll obey. You'll obey. I think as Christians in the modern era, we are so good and so quick to get more data. Data, data, data. Information, information, information. Download, download, download. We want more knowledge, but the Bible's very clear that knowledge puffs up. When do we take the word of God that we've learned and actually turn it into godly action? So to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ is not a mere profession of faith. It's a lifetime call to obedience. It's a lifetime call to obedience. A call to hear the words of Christ 
and obey. So Jesus defines the word Lord as a deep connection to recognizing who he is with godly action put together. That's the point. So when we say that Jesus is my Lord, that's a good profession of faith. But we cannot subtract godly obedience or godly action from that. So professing faith in Jesus is a good start. But how do you know that you belong to Jesus? How do you actually know you belong to Jesus? Well, one evidence is that you obey him. It's not a burden. It's not a killjoy. It's not sadness. It's a joy to obey him. 1 John 5, 2 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God. He's talking about, how do I know that I love the church family, the children of God? When we love God and obey his commandments. When we love God and obey his commandments. So when we obey the Lord's commands, we show love to God and we prove that we are his children. This is not how we become Christians. This is not about how we are forgiven of all our sins by the almighty, holy, perfect, righteous God and judge. This is not about how we are forgiven. This is all about once you are forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ alone, then how shall we live? So we need to understand that real salvation from our real Savior and our real God require real obedience from his people. We are to be doers of God's word, not simply hearers of God's word. So how's your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? When we read the word of God, do we obey or do we procrastinate? Or do we hear the word of God and delay? You know, when the Lord commands his people to do something, he doesn't say, I'm going to give you a time out for five minutes. Go stand in the corner. And then when you're good and ready, come on out and we'll talk about this. We'll play the biblical version of the price is right. Let's negotiate. No, when God commands his people to do something, God expects them to do it with the right heart, right attitude, right away. Don't we do that with our children? We should. So, does your life lead to godly action? That's point number one. Point number two is where I'm going to spend a little bit of time. Point number two, found in verse 48. We're talking now not about lordship. Now we're talking about the wise foundation. Verse 48, read with me. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. So to prove his point, Jesus' point about true allegiance unto him, which requires obedience, Jesus presents an analogy. It's an analogy of the home builder. There are two home builders. They're building homes. There's home A and home B. But what separates these two home builders is not the home, but the foundation. What's underneath the home. The first home builder, it says here, dug deep. That's the English standard version, dug deep. And so we understand the idea that it takes hard work to dig deep. But he's laying a foundation on a rock. We can translate that as bedrock. Bedrock is a massive, solid piece of rock that's horizontal usually, just underneath the surface of the ground. And this is what he has chosen. So this home builder has wisdom to some degree because he has found the right foundation to build his home. 
And then on top of that, he understands that there's going to be great difficulty coming to him at some point in the future. That there's going to be difficulties. That there's going to be major problems or storms. Probably a better translation of this original part within the Bible is dug down deep. Not just dug down, but dug down deep. The idea is this person has spent time, money, energy, has sacrificed so much to dig deep. Because why? This home builder wants to guarantee and ensure that the foundation is set properly. He's following the blueprint, so to speak. And so the emphasis here is that this man went well beyond what he was supposed to do to prepare the foundation. That's the idea there. Why? Because he knew that there was a storm coming. He knew that there was problems coming. There comes a day in this text where the rivers were overflowed and the river banks were overflowed and the water came towards this man's house. And it shook the man's house violently, but yet the man's house was not destroyed. It was not ruined. This strong, mighty river could not destroy this house. Why? Because the text says it was well built or built well. I think it's more accurate to say that the house was built on the rock. The house was built on the rock. It's not the quality of the house. It's not the materials of the house. It has nothing to do with the house, and it has nothing to do with the house builder, but it has everything to do with the foundation. That's the focus, is the foundation. And so this home builder and this house that this person has built represents what? It represents this person's entire life. Everything that this person has worked for, everything that this person has collected and gather, gathered over 50, 60, 70, 80 years, yet the storms and difficulties and challenges are coming, and he understands this. He understands that possible death and judgment is coming. This man is wise in what he is doing. And the only foundation that can be built or used to be built upon is a rock-solid foundation. It's a rock-solid foundation. And the only foundation that you and I could ever build our lives upon is the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. And how do we know this? It's because Jesus says, why do you call me master or Lord and yet do not do what I tell you to do? Here's another way of saying that, is this. That the solid foundation is the word of God. Is the word of God. And in this case, Jesus commands in words. So the real question now becomes, what is your life built upon? Just take a few seconds. Think about your entire life. Students, if you're in middle school, high school, college, it doesn't matter. What is your foundation built upon? Those of you who are married or married with kids, what is your foundation built upon? What is your married life built upon? What is your business built upon? What is your occupation built upon? What type of foundation do you have? And as we learn God's word, we must be ready to obey God's word. Even when we find ourselves in great difficulties. We must be ready to obey God's word at all costs. And as Christians, it's important, how do we apply this text? How do we apply this text so that we can leave this place encouraged, built up, edified in the faith, that we can walk out these doors and live for Christ another day, another week, another month, and another year for the glory of his name? 
The answer is actually in verse 47. Verse 47. Read with me. He says this. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. There's three verbs in that verse. Three verbs. Come, hear, and do. Or if you want to, those of you who are English grammarians, if you want to put it in the participle form, coming, hearing, and doing. And the idea is this. If these three verbs are actually satisfied, then there's a personal benefit to that person, to the Christian. The first verb of come, but to who? Who are they to go to? They're to go to Jesus. The one who comes to who? Me, referring to Jesus. This is the wise home builder. The wise home builder doesn't go to the government. The wise home builder doesn't go to their neighbors. The wise home builder doesn't go to those who are celebrities. They don't go to other religious leaders. No, the wise home builder goes directly to Jesus Christ. They're not interested in political freedom. They're not interested in nonviolent protests. They're not interested in making up a different religion with a different gospel, with a different Jesus. They're interested in following Christ, and they do so by going to Christ. They're not interested in what Hollywood has to say. They're not interested in what Mohammed has to say. They're not interested in what Fox News and CNN has to say. They're not interested in any of that. They're interested in Jesus. They want Jesus. And when my life has fallen apart, my hope is in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the ones, is the one who has eternal life. Are you going to leave me too, as Jesus says to his disciples? And what does the disciple say? If I leave you, you have the words of eternal life. In other words, if I leave you, Jesus, I lose everything. I lose absolutely everything. Jesus is the one who teaches with authority. He's not simply a mere teacher. He's greater than a teacher. He's the one with eternal life, the one with authority. He is Lord. He is God. He is Savior. That's who Jesus is. And we go to him. You know, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, practically speaking, when we come to a gathering called the church on a Sunday morning, practically what we're doing is we are going to Jesus. Why? Because we're here to hear his word. Which leads to the second verb, hear. We hear God's voice. Please listen to this. We hear God's voice as we read God's word. We hear God's voice as we read God's word. The Bible. The Bible is the infallible, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God. There is no other that can compete with that. The word of God is our source of hope and our source of wisdom. If you want biblical wisdom, then I want to encourage you, you need to ask God. You have not because you ask not, and when you ask, you ask amiss to spend it on your own sinful, evil desires. We need to ask God for help. Many times we don't ask God for help. Why? Because we're prideful. We think we can handle the problems of life on our own. But we need to ask God for biblical wisdom. And we need to go to the Lord in prayer. And when the Lord hears that type of prayer, He honors that type of prayer because He gives wisdom liberally to those who are in need. That's James chapter 1, verse 5. 
And if you want biblical wisdom, then we need to study the biblical wisdom genres or wisdom literature. We need to study Job. We need to study Proverbs. We need to study Song of Solomon. We need to study Ecclesiastes. If you don't have biblical wisdom and you don't read those parts of the Bible, you are missing out on biblical wisdom. This is how we hear God's word. And why should we study the Bible at all? We should study the Bible because God has given each and every one of us, every man, woman, and child, a conscience. A conscience. And this conscience makes us unique and separates us from all the other creatures that God had made at the beginning of time in Genesis. He did not give the monkey a conscience. He did not give the tree or the cactus in the backyard a conscience. He did not give the whale the conscience. He gave human beings made in the image of God a conscience. And with that conscience, we make evaluations and decisions with that conscience every day. The problem is, is the conscience good or bad? Biblically speaking, prior to Genesis chapter 3, the conscience was pure and right and holy before God. And then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam, the federal head of the human race, plunged the entire humanity into sin. And now everything that we see in the world today is tainted by the disease called sin. And so our consciences are tainted with sin. And yet our consciences make evaluations and decisions all the time. And so we have to take our conscience and put it next to or on top of or through the word of God or the gospel. In other words, we have to inform our conscience with the word of God. To let our conscience make evaluations and decisions apart from the word of God is disastrous. Think about this. When a situation comes into our life, we make evaluations. Is this good or is this evil? Is this right or is this wrong? Is this moral or is this immoral? Is this ethical or is this unethical? Is this sin or is it not sin? Our conscience is making decisions and evaluations all the time. But to make the conscience, our conscience, that is tainted with sin, to make these evaluations and decisions apart from the Word of God is disastrous. That's why we need to study the Word of God. I want to encourage you, dear brother and sister. God has given you a great privilege to study the Word of God. Do we understand that there are countries right now around the world, there are people groups around the world that would love a copy of the Word of God in their own language. And we have the ESV, we have the NET, we have the NIV, we have the King James, we have the New King James. We have every English version of the Bible at our fingertips or at the click of a mouse. And yet we don't use the Word of God like we ought to. I want to encourage you, study the Word of God, which leads me to the third point of how to practically apply this, the, the verb do. Again, this is a call to obedience. A call to obedience. There are teachings in the Bible that feel unnatural. And it causes us a level of discomfort. But the Bible never asks us, the Word of God never tells us that we are to be comfortable. It doesn't say you ought to feel good. It is not based on how we feel. It's not our emotional makeup. It's obedience to the glory of God. That's what we're talking about. Obedience to the glory of God. He created you. He saved you. He brought you into a new family called the church of God. And now he's designed you to obey for his glory. Yes, it's unnatural to love our enemies, but it's not about our feelings. It's about obedience to the glory of God. 
And the only reason we can love our enemies is because God reconciled enemies unto himself and loved them through the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's all of you and me. Does that make any sense? He loved us, not while we were friends of God, but enemies of God. That's Romans chapter 5. And so the reason we can love our enemies is because God has loved us first. Matthew Henry says this about obedience. Obedient believers are kept by the power of Christ through faith unto salvation and shall never perish. We are eternally secure in Christ. And we thank God for that. We are eternally secure in Christ because we have a real Savior who's given us a real salvation and we really are forgiven by God in Christ. And we praise God for that. And if that is the case, do we not owe Him our lives? Do we not owe Him our lives? We do. I just had a conversation with a Roman Catholic friend for lunch this week. And he tells me every time we have lunch, Rolo, I learned something new. I learned something new. And my, ear, my ears are bleeding every time he tells me, I heard something new. I learned something new. And what he's trying to tell me, there's another way to heaven. No, there is not another way to heaven. There's not multiple, multiple ways to heaven. There may be multiple ways to Rome, but there's not only one way to heaven. That's Jesus Christ. We owe him our lives. That, that was my response to him. Because he said to me, Jesus died for me. I said, well, how do you live your life from day to day? Do you obey his word? Do you live for him? He would say, I think so. I hope so. I said to him, do you owe him your life if Christ really died for you? So how's our obedience unto Jesus? Or maybe the question is better phrased, how's our disobedience? Has the Lord convicted you to do something for his glory and you procrastinate? I want to encourage you, if that's you, do it now. Because if you have a terrible habit of procrastinating, you will forget and never do it. If the Holy Spirit of God is within you and convicting you to do something according to the Word of God for His glory, do it. Don't wait. Do it for the glory of God. Otherwise, you will forget. Maybe I should say it like this. Why do you call Jesus Lord, Lord, and you not obey Him? So I think by now we have a good idea of what the definition of lordship is and having a wise foundation. Now, point number three, the foolish foundation, found in verse 49. Read with me. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. This foolish foundation is the exact opposite of the wise foundation. Anything that could go wrong does go wrong. This home builder hears what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't apply it. He doesn't put it into practice. And this foolish home builder built a house, which implies he put in a certain amount of work, sacrifice, money, energy. And I'm sure that his house, if I could use my biblical imagination for a few seconds, was just as nice as the wise home builder house. It was beautiful. It was spectacular. It was probably one of the most beautiful houses ever built. But this second home experiences the same calamity as the first home builder. The storms of life come to this person. The riverbanks overflow. This mighty torrential downpour and river breaks through 
and it targets the house of the foolish home builder. And it destroys the house completely. It's utterly ruined. There's nothing to salvage. It's completely decimated. This foolish home builder lost everything in the end. He spent so much time and money and energy, and at the end of his life, he loses it all. It was absolutely devastating and painful. Why? Why is always the question, why? Verse 49, it's not the house. It's not the home builder. It's the foundation. There was no solid structure to hold the house in place. When the waves kept beating this house, it was rattling, ready to be destroyed, and nothing to hold it solidly in place. In other words, this house was built on loose dirt. Loose dirt. About three weeks ago, if you're paying attention to international news, uh, that's one of my hobbies, by the way, is I like to watch international news and what's happening around the world. But in Libya, on September 11th of this year, torrential downpours hit that country. In this one village, the river banks overflowed, the old dams were inundated, destroyed the dams, headed straight for this town, this city, and destroyed the lives of thousands of people. Actually, within 10 minutes, 5,000 people died and stepped into eternity. And there's 10,000 other people who are missing, men, women, and children. They woke up that morning thinking, my life is great. I've built a great life. And within a few hours, the storms of life, literally a massive river came through their town, 5,000 people walked into eternity. 10,000 other people are still missing. They never expected their houses or their lives to be swept away. That should remind us of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, by the way, is a more comprehensive, more detailed look of Luke chapter 6 regarding the Beatitudes. Matthew 7, 26 says this. Jesus says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. On the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and the great, and great was the fall of it. It doesn't say that the house just fell apart. It was utterly ruined in a great way. So to hear the words of Christ and not put it into godly action, that person is a foolish man or a foolish woman. They built their house, they built their lives on a foolish foundation. And the waters of life, the storms of life, life in general came and destroyed it completely. So one of the things that we can get from this is there's two types of foolish builders. Not two types of wise builders, but two types of foolish builders. One are the ones who are self-deluded, thinking they are Christians, but in reality, they are not. Why? Because their lifestyle is evidence that they habitually disobey. They have no remorse, no regret, no brokenness over their sin. It's like the person who's asleep in this sermon right now. Yawning. Watching social media because they can't handle the truth of God's word. Watching sports because they can't handle the truth of God's word. You know who you are. Number two, those who are not Christians at all. They're not Christians at all. These people... They're good at building their lives, their business lives, their occupational lives, their careers. They're good at building their own kingdoms that in the end will be burnt up or rather swept away by a massive flood. I would label this massive flood as a form of judgment. Or let me say it this way an eschatological 
river of judgment. Eschatological means end of time. There's time there's a time in human history where time started, but also there's a time in human, human history that it will end. This is the day where judgment will happen, an eschatological river of judgment. So be advised, if you're not a Christian, judgment is coming for you. You can run, you can even go try to buy a boat and paddle yourself away, but you're not going to outrun this massive torrential downpour and river. It's coming straight for your life and your lifestyle. So be advised, you have built your life on the wrong foundation. And so your only hope is Jesus Christ. If you say, I don't want to be judged, I want God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, then you better run to Christ. He's your only foundation where you can withstand this type of judgment. What happens to those who call Jesus Lord, Lord? Have you ever thought about that? What happens to the person who constantly calls Jesus Lord, Lord, and constantly disobeys Christ? The answer is in Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, what? Could he, could he, master, master, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's the one who obeys God the Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, or if you prefer, you workers of iniquity. Those are scary, scary words from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says, not everyone who calls me master, master is going to heaven. It's the one who obeys God the Father according to the word of God. It's not your personal opinion. It's not your emotional opinion. It's not your intellectual opinion. It's the one who obeys the Lord himself. That word Lord, by the way, can only be used, that term can only be used by a disciple of Christ. If you're a disciple of Christ, you say, Jesus is my Lord. I'm a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is referring, again, to disobedience. Disobedience to what? Disobedience to not obeying what God has commanded in his word. Or in this case, the words of Christ. But the one who obeys is the one who goes to heaven. Again, just because you obey the word of God doesn't mean you're forgiven by God. Just because you obey the word of God doesn't mean you're forgiven by God. Again, you're not forgiven of all your sins by being a good moral person or a good moral parent or a good citizen of the United States of America and you pay your taxes on April 15th religiously every year on time. And you don't miss a dollar. No, that's not the case. Sinners are forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And once you are forgiven by Jesus Christ alone, by turning from your sins and trusting in him as your Savior and Lord, then what happens? How shall I live? That's what we're talking about. This is not a sliding scale or subjective scale of morality. Pastor Rollo, how do you know this? Because if you read Matthew 7, you look at verse 22, this is what happens. These individuals claim that they're speaking God's word, their divine utterances, like prophetic-like. I'm a prophet. These people also, they have done supernatural works of exercising demons out of people. Demon oppression is a real thing. And these people are saying, Lord, we did mighty, spiritual, supernatural things in your name. We cast out the demons out of these people. Jesus goes on to say, and these people have done many mighty works. So many mighty works, you can't even count them. They're innumerable. 
And we did them not in our name. We did them in your name. They performed these good works. They performed these good deeds. They helped many people. But Jesus declares publicly and emphatically, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you lawless workers. I never knew you. If you understand that statement by Jesus, that is very scary. That you can look good on a Sunday morning. You can preach and teach the Word of God. You can raise up a godly family. You can go evangelize and be the greatest missionary next to William Carey, the father of modern missions. You could do all these great works in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, in the final day, on that day, that eschatological day of judgment, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Do you understand how scary that is? That there's some people in here, have, they have deluded themselves to thinking they're Christian, and in reality, they haven't. How do I know what your obedience say about your Christian walk? What does your obedience say about your Christian walk? Are you these workers of lawlessness? And so one of the things that makes total sense when we read the story biblically is that there's two home builders with two houses and they have two foundations and one stands and one is completely destroyed. Let me say it like this. Either you've pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ as your Lord and it shows in your obedience. Doesn't mean that you won't sin. Doesn't mean that you'll fall down. Doesn't mean that you won't offend your God and Father who loves you. Doesn't mean that. But you've pledged your life to Christ. And you're living for Him as best as you can with the help of the Holy Spirit. Or you're not a Christian at all. There's no middle ground. That's the point of the story. There's not three houses in this story. There's two houses in this story. Either you pledge allegiance to Christ and you obey him or you don't. There is no middle house. There is no third house. There is no middle ground. Neutrality is a myth. There is no purgatory. There's two houses. The foolish builder has built his entire life on a foolish, sandy foundation. He has built his life on something other than the truth of God's word. 2 Timothy 4.3 says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. These are the people who have an endless fascination with the next great thing. These are people who have an endless fascination with Hollywood, if I could say it that way. They're obsessed with politics. They're obsessed with social justice. They're obsessed with the latest news media outlet. They're obsessed with everything else in the world except God's truth and God's word. They're obsessed with it. Are you in this camp? Be honest with yourself. Are you in this camp? Because if you're in this camp, Jesus will say, Depart from me, you nice-looking Christian." who does good moral religious deeds by feeding the homeless and helping others. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. In other words, Christ is not the center of their life. Christ is not their foundation. But all this superficial stuff of religiosity is their focus. If that's you, in the end, you'll lose everything like this foolish home builder who built his house on the wrong foundation. You need to look to Christ. You need to look to Christ. Why? He is the rock of salvation. There is no other rock like Jesus. He's the only one 
you can turn to and live. In Psalm 89, verse 26, it says this, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. You hear what the psalmist is saying? My, my, my. Salvation to the psalmist is very real, very serious, and very personal. Jesus is mine. God is mine, and I am his. This is personal. And the person who cries out genuinely in repentance and faith, here's the beauty. God will save you. God will save you from the wrath to come. Around 600 B.C., in an area called Miletus, this is the west coast of modern-day Turkey, there was a phenomenon that was spreading throughout the region. There was a movement that had a lot of steam, an intellectual movement. That movement was called philosophy. Philosophy, if you define it properly, is a love of wisdom. Love of wisdom. And this was common in the ancient Near East. And what traditional secular wisdom teachers would do is they would go across the land, go across the landscape, and they would talk to many people, and they would say, Ooh, what you said, that's good. I'm going to write that down. And oh, what you said, oh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. And what you said, I'm going to write that down. What you said, and what you said, I'm going to write it down. And what happens is I've compiled a list or a booklet of all the greatest secular teachers with the wisest sayings. Now, the Bible does some of that, but the Bible emphasizes that there's an authority higher than man, an authority higher than any human teacher. Psalm 111.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1 7 says this The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, what's the point? The point is this Greek philosophers back in those days, they attempted to understand God's creation, God's world through tradition or without tradition, without religion and without the God of the Holy Scriptures. That's what they would try to do, understand the world without any of those. And when we attempt to build our lives, our marriages, our families, our careers, our occupations, our retirement lives, without a true foundation in God's Word, really, we're functional Greek philosophers. We come here on Sunday, we say, God is King God is Savior. Jesus is my Lord. And then we leave this place and we functionally act like Greek philosophers. I love wisdom. What you said is good. What you said is good. What you said is good. But we don't love the source of biblical wisdom. We don't love God and his word. And when we call Jesus Lord, we must understand Jesus is not our buddy. Jesus is not our homeboy. Jesus is not our OG. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We must be reminded that Jesus, using the word Lord, is not simply a title of respect, but it is a call to godly action. This is a call to obedience to his word. I want to remind us, as I close here, John 14, 15 says this. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my what? My commandments. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. Sermon in a sentence. Every part of our lives must be built upon God's holy word. Every part of our lives must be built upon God's holy word, which includes obedience unto him let us pray father we're grateful that we have heard your word 
And we've heard a hard word, a difficult word, a challenging word, O God. And we admit to you, O Lord, that many times in our lives we have built our lives on a faulty, weak, sandy foundation. When we try to take control and reins of our lives. Father, for that we are sorry. Please forgive us in Christ because you are the God who is merciful to sinners. We thank you for the great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus. Remind us again constantly, day to day, from your word, the only foundation that is rock solid is the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to build our lives upon your word, to be ready to act in a godly way, and to simply trust and obey your word. We bless you, O God. Bring glory to your great name. In Christ we pray. Amen.